0: I read an old sermon by Tim Keller, and he says that uh, the role of... And, of course, I don't know any of this. But but think about the role of water as far as your body goes. He says, you know, your body is 50% water. And that if you're deprived of water, and if you die of, of, of thirst and dehydration, it's one of the most horrible and agonizing ways... Die. Now we don't see that around here anymore. But basically guys, thirst is a physical deprivation because you're made of water. And therefore you crave it. And you need it. But in the same way Jesus, in using living water, is saying to this woman, your soul is craving for something that you don't have and I'm the only one who can give it to you. It comes from me.
1: Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III.
0: We're in John Chapter 4. Really, I don't know about you, I've really enjoyed uh, going through this. Um, It's been very beneficial for me doing the preparation. Um, But if you would turn to John Chapter 4... And not knowing when or if you've read this, uh, we're going to take just a minute and let everybody read through it silently. And then I'm—we're going to to kind of this week we're going to kind of walk through uh, these thirty verses, John chapter four verses one through thirty. What are the Jews? What do we know about the Jews and the Samaritans? They didn't associate. They didn't associate. What else? They're a little stronger than that. Hated they hated each other; other. they really did. Uh, let me read you this, just so you kind of get a little a little uh, uh, understanding. President under Steve Rowe uh, who was here yesterday, uh, he went to um, Israel a year ago and spent time in the area where, in fact, saw Jacob's well. They said this is the, this was one of the only wells in that region, so they know for sure that this was the well. You can go to it today and see it. <clears throat> But the Samaritans are adherents of Samaritanism, which is a religion closely related to Judaism. The Samaritans believe that their worship was based on the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is, they believe in the first five books of the Bible, but that's it. They believe that this they are the true religion of the ancient Israelites from before the Babylonian captivity, preserved by those who remained in the land of Israel, as opposed to Judaism, which they see as related, but altered and and, and amended religion brought back by those returning from the Babylonian captivity. The Samaritans believe that Mount Gerizim was the original holy place of Israel from the time that Joshua conquered Canaan. The major issues between Jews and Samaritans has always been, and you'll see it in here, has always been the location of the chosen place to worship God Mount Zion in Jerusalem according to the Jewish faith or Mount Gerizim according to the Samaritan faith So basically what you have is each of them claim to be the true faith of the ancient Israelites And they basically they because of that they hate each other And I didn't realize this, there used to be this, you know, a large population of Samaritans. But today there's about eight or 900 of them left in the world. Now, as we look at this woman, we know a lot, we, we, we learn a lot about her. And first and foremost, just so you'll, you'll understand how unusual this is, this conversation that Jesus has, with this lady. You know, this was a patriarchal society. I mean, you to men really didn't speak and fraternize with women out in public. And so she comes to the well not expecting anybody to say anything to her. Particularly a Jew, who was a man, that he would speak to her. And then you have to add one other thing to this. This was what's interesting as I was researching. She was also... A moral outcast. She had been married five times, and she was currently living with a man. So think about it. in that culture there, everybody probably knew who this woman was. There are five men out there that were her former husbands. And in verse six, it says. And this is what scholars say. So makes gives the Bible such validity is some of the details that you see. Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour in Jewish time was high noon, the heat of the day. And every commentator that I read say that the women. This is the way things were. They didn't have running water. This was the only well in the area. They had a lot of little springs, but this was the only well you could come to, and the women would come bring these big buckets and fill them with water, and they'd use it throughout the day. But the women would usually all come together early in the morning, one, before it was hot, two, it was a way that they kind of would, would, would socialize, so to speak. I mean, I think you can understand that. But not this woman. She was excluded. She comes at high noon. And they say that she came in the middle of the day because she was a moral and social outcast because of the life that she was living. None of the women wanted to have anything to do with her. And in verse 7, you see where Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and she is surprised because what you see Jesus really doing... Is breaking through all the barriers that segregated people back then and really which kind of segregate people even today. There was a gender barrier. There was a racial barrier, Jew Samaritan. And there was a morality barrier. And so she was surprised, maybe really even pleasantly surprised that this strange man speaks to her. But look at what Jesus says to her. Look, go, go down to verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, <clears throat> If you knew the gift of God, and he <clears throat> it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Now that word know, where He says if you knew, the word literally means Understand. And he wasn't being arrogant about it. He was just saying, matter-of-factly, "If you only understood what I have to offer you." And this is crucial to recognize, guys. what does he say? If you knew what? The gift of God. I think that is so important, and it's so easy just to kind of overlook it. He calls it a gift. He doesn't say the wage of God. That you earn, it's a gift. And I, as I was preparing, I couldn't help but think of, of that verse in Second uh, Corinthians nine fifteen, where Paul says, "Anybody remember?" It says, "Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift to us." It's it's so wonderful, it's indescribable. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I think we, we probably covered this plenty of times that salvation is clearly a gift and that you have to receive it. You receive a gift. It's not a wage that you earn. But clearly, guys, it has to be received and yet, isn't it incredible, God gives us this incredible, indescribable gift and yet many reject it. They either say I don't need it or I don't want it. And if you think about it, that's, when you get right to that's an arrogance. That the God of the universe gives us this indescribable gift and we reject it and say I don't want it, I don't need it, do away with it. And that's why ultimately coming to Jesus requires Humility. It requires coming on the basis of, Lord, I need your forgiveness. In other words, I am a sinner. I surrender you. And I receive this wonderful gift that I so desperately need. It's not only a gift that you enjoy, it's something that we desperately need. And you remember what uh, what God says back in, in John 1, 12? Or John says back in John 1, He says, As for many who received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God any comment
1: Richard it seems to me that the point that being made here is a universal access of this gift if he'll offer it to her
0: he'll
2: offer it to anybody, anybody.
0: that's a that's a great point yeah it is it's offered for God so love the whole world that he gave
2: and a message to us to do the same amen Amen.
0: I got a question. Who? I, I don't, we don't take questions. Now go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I know
2: how Jesus knew that she was the Samaritan. How did she know that Jesus was the Jew? Was that that
0: know, is that? a really good. That's a really good question. I, I, I'm going to guess the way he was dressed, maybe the way he spoke. I, I don't know that. I'm I'm ill prepared to answer that question, but it, it's a good one. But maybe it was he, he the, the language he speak. He spoke. Um, you know. Even I'm sure he he was speaking in Greek um any kind, anybody I I don't know if he's speaking in Greek, Greek? <laughs> do what you said he was speaking in Greek. Well, everything is recorded in Greek. He spoke Hebrew. I'm,
2: excuse me. Well, right. they, they yeah. aren't. They don't obviously record every detail hand. of the conversation. Right. He, if they could have had a pre. You know, he could have said, "You know, I'm a Jew from he, resting here from my journey from so and so." Who knows?
0: Warren is Warren is is, is nodding his head. I, that, yeah. that very well could yeah. be <laughs> the uh, case. They, yeah. they wore
2: different <laughs> clothes. I mean, uh, <laughs> he's uh, not. All he right, <laughs> he could have his little cap
0: on. <laughs> ben Ben uh, yeah, oh <laughs> Ben. <laughs> <laughs> said they may have. He, he said they very may well have had different type of clothes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who knows? His accident. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. So, so I, brother, it it was clear that that okay. she knew he was a Jew, and they you know they were traveling through Samaria. They didn't have to, but they chose to. <laughs> All right. In fact, most, usually Jews would not go through Samaria. They would go the long way. All right. Now, um, Jesus then speaks Out of the blue, about this living water in verse 14. Well, first of all, he tells her about living water in verse 10. And he would give you living water. And then verse 14, we get a a view of what he says Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He's saying, I have a water. That if you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. In other words, he is saying, My salvation, my the Holy Spirit that will accompany it is as necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically. I read an old sermon by Tim Keller, and he says that uh, the role of... W- and of course, I don't know any of this. But think about the role of water as far as your body goes. He says, you know, your body is 50% water. And that if you're deprived of water, and if you die of, of, of thirst and dehydration, it's one of the most horrible and agonizing ways to die. Now, we don't see that around here anymore. But basically, guys, thirst is a physical deprivation because you're made of water. And therefore, you crave it. And you need it. But in the same way, Jesus, in using living water, is saying to this woman, Your soul is craving for something that you don't have. And I'm the only one who can give it to you. It comes from me. Now, when I teach the investigative study, which I've been through with a number of you, um, in, the, in the very first part, and this is, I, I want to tell you, this always seems to impact people. Because it's the first one that we do, and when we're done, they want to come back for the second one. But it's, it's, I always talk about the issue of purpose and the reason for our earthly existence, which we have said on uh, numerous occasions is to know God. That God put us here to live in relationship with him. For the same reason you bring children to the world to anticipate a relationship with them. And so as I go through that and we look at at what the scripture says the way God designed each one of us. And then I ask this question. If this is true, if this is why we're here, if this is the purpose for our earthly existence, then why do so many people miss this? And one of the main reasons I tell them is I use the same really this the same logic that Jesus is using here. And I say, you know, we come into this life with a physical dimension, a body, and a spiritual dimension as well. And therefore, we have certain physical desires and needs, the desires of the body. But then we also have certain spiritual desires and need, the desires of the soul, if you want to use that terminology. And then I say, think about the desires of the body that you and I have. We, have, we get hungry, and so we eat. We get thirsty, and so we drink. We get tired, and so we rest and sleep. And then we hit puberty and your sexuality kicks in and you have sexual desire. And those are the four basic desires of the body. The sensual side of life. And think about how we in the Western world have elevated these desires. And for so many people the desires of the body the sensual side of life (coughs) Becomes the center of their earthly existence. It becomes what what drives them, satisfying the desires of the body. And think about how that's been accentuated in in our modern culture. I mean, think about eating, how it's changed over the years. I have heard me say this? You know, I was a kid growing up in Crestline. There weren't any restaurants. There was a Davis's, which was a delicatessen. you remember that? Any you remember that, mate? And then Pasquale's finally showed up. <laughs> wow. Everybody remember Pasquale's? Yeah. I mean, how many restaurants in Crossline today? You could go to Brittling's in Mountain Brook Village and get a meat and three vegetables. That was kind of, you know, because most people ate at home. Eating was kind of simple. So, I mean, look at it today. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It just shows you how much emphasis is placed on eating. And then think about drinking, all the things you can drink. And resting and sleep I mean, think of all the vacations that are that are built around resting the body. And then what do you say about sex? I mean, we are a sex-saturated society. And what basically what's happened is people have forgotten that we're not one-dimensional. We're not just a body. We're just not just a physical body. We have... Spiritual needs and spiritual desires as well. And I contend that the soul of man yearns for love and for joy and for peace and for security. For contentment. And these yearnings, Jesus is telling these yearnings can only be satisfied by the Spirit of God, what Christ calls living water. That's what David says. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, Psalm 42.2. But this is what I want to point out to you. Do you see what happens? Why do we miss this? <coughs> and this is, in my opinion, is what Jesus is really trying to drive home in this encounter with this woman. Human beings are attempting to satisfy the spiritual yearnings of the soul with the physical, sensual, pleasures of life and it won't work. It can't work. The physical pleasures of life can never satisfy the spiritual longings of the soul and that's why Jesus says you need the living water. The gift that I give to
2: you. It's a gift. And you have to receive it.
0: Comments or questions?
2: What is that first? My people have committed two sins. Two evils. Two evils. They have rejected <clears throat> an evil. The,
0: the, the, fount, the fountain of living water to make for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah two thirteen. To me, one of my fa- that's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament because it says what we're talking about here. It's consistent with what 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 you see here. Anybody else? Well, let me just say this: at this point in the investigative study, after I've just shared what I just shared. <coughs> We then go and read this, this scripture in John four. Jesus's encounter with this woman, because Christ is telling her, you are looking to satisfy your thirst in the wrong places, and you're not finding what you're looking for. It's like almost Jesus is saying, how's it working out for you? You know, it's, this is kind of interesting, guys. You know, in the book that I love so much. The Question of God by Armand Nikolai. This is this is really kind of interesting. We talk about this thirst of the soul. One of the things, and I've i I've, I've always remembered this in the book. This was, if you recall, uh, Armand Nikolai compares the life of C.S. Lewis with Sigmund Freud, and he did a in-depth study of each of their lives. And he's a you know, he's a psychiatrist, uh, teaches psychiatry at Harvard, and he's a Christian. But he tried not to. I mean, he just basically tried to do an objective study of Freud's life, with Lewis's life. In fact, Greg Piper and I was going after we talked last week. I was going to recommend that would really be a good book for the person that you were. Meeting. It's it's one. It's my very really almost all-time favorite. But it's just a very objective look at these two men's lives and their worldview, <coughs> and their view of of happiness, their view of of of, of death, their view of relationships, and um. <coughs> And what you end up seeing, he, it comes out is that, that Lewis was an incredibly healthy man and Freud was messed up. He really was messed up. But one of the things you learn is that it says Freud said I mean, you read you can read this in one of his biographies, that he recognized that he had a deep longing in his life. It was a deep longing that he, could, he says he could never figure out what it was and he was never able to satisfy it. And Nikolai says, Freud said that this yearning to, to seek to satisfy this yearning haunted him all the days of his life. And it makes you wonder if that's not true in all the people in the world that we see and encounter and know who haven't found that living water. Now, it seems to me that he's saying, I'm, gi- I'm going to give you more than just this living water. Because what does he say it's going to be like in verse 14? It's going to be in him like a well of water that springs up to eternal life. It's like what Jesus is saying, I have what every human soul longs for, and it's not just to satisfy you. Is to give you a new, think about it, it's to give you a new purpose, a new joy, a whole new dynamic in your innermost being. But the problem with this lady, this woman, is she doesn't get it, does she, right? Initially, she doesn't get it. Because she's still focusing on the physical external He's focusing on the spiritual need in her life, and she's thinking about not having to come to this well to to, to drag water back to her house every day. As someone pointed out, one of the, it was kind of like Nicodemus. Jesus is talking about this spiritual new birth, and he's saying, "How do you how do you go back into your mother's womb?" I, I don't get this. And this seems to be a part of the human condition: is that we focus so much of our lives on the outer our outer public life. That everyone sees. It's so much of our earthly experience. It's the part of us that is visible. It's measurable. Particularly it relates to how successful we are as men. But in the process, we clearly and easily neglect the soul and the health of the soul and our inner life. And that's why Jesus always seems to laser back in on the inner life and what's going on in here. Richard,
1: I can't help but think when you say the human condition, you know, there's different ways to describe that. One is original sin, another one is the ego or self centeredness. You've talked about what's in the box. You know, are we on the throne in our heart, or is God on the throne in our heart? Yeah. That's what we're talking about.
0: Amen. Right on. Right on. Anybody else? All right, everybody with me here? Um,. Look at verse sixteen. <clears throat> what is it what does he do what does he do there? He says, Go go call your husband. Now, some people reading this think Jesus is changing the subject. <clears throat> when he asked her, you, Where's your husband? But he's really not. This is part of the conversation, <coughs> important, very important part. What's that about? What do you think that's about when he asks her, where's your husband?
2: Exposing her sin. Okay. But he's making a point. I mean, he's making a point.
0: He's See? making a point. What's the point?
2: He's about to let her know that he's a prophet. Early
0: okay. Early. All right. And what do you think the significant is? I mean, she doesn't have a husband, does she? But she's got a man in her life that she's living with.
2: He's exposing her the fact that she's looking for a, a source of her satisfaction that's not going to that's not going to bring yeah. what, she, what she needs in life yeah she she
0: is she is saying basically I think what he's trying to point out to her is you are looking to sex and romance you're looking for a man to come into your life and satisfy all the yearnings of your soul. He's trying to explain to her that she is trying to settle the thirst of her soul these relationships with men and nothing's really changed and this again you know if you think about it this is this is in one sense is true with people today don't you think ernest becker who very famous anthropologist was an atheist except apparently he may have become a christian right before he died You know, wrote that Pulitzer Prize winning book The Denial of Death and then he says quote modern people are looking to sex and romance to get a sense of meaning now that they used to get from God in other words God's been displaced by sex and romance so in one sense as we read this human beings really haven't changed this woman is not a real aberration and then we've talked look at verse 13 we've talked about this a lot over the years because Jesus is revealing that the physical central, ple- central, In fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you remember when we talked about idolatry, that the physical sensual pleasures of life don't satisfy you. Th- why? Because you thirst again. You remember we talked about the law of diminishing returns. That's one of the great limitations of the physical sensual side of life as we experience the, the, the sensual, physical uh, pleasures of life, they bring great delight, but then the next day you're thirsty again. And that's one of the problems, that's one of the limitations of this earthly life. Now, if you remember, there is a second problem with the physical dimension of life. It's limited in its ability to satisfy, it can't satisfy. But you know what else? There's another problem with it. I remember? Keep your finger here and turn real quick to sec- This is this is a very, I think it's a very powerful verse. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Robert Jolly, you want to read that for us? 2 Corinthians 4.16.
2: Therefore, we do not live <coughs> long. So, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day.
0: So, what's the second problem with the physical side of life?
2: We get old dying.
0: We get old. And we're, <clears throat> you know, we the uh, New American says our bodies are decaying, mm-hmm. the NIV says they're wasting away. And one says Paul is is, is 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 kind of concurring with Jesus. And you know this. You know what I love about that verse? It is so true. People lose heart over this. They lose heart because their bodies, their careers, everything that's precious to them is wasting away. <clears throat> but what does he say? As Christians. We don't lose heart. He says we have an opportunity to be renewed day by day. We have a spring of water that springs up, bubbles up, and so we can be renewed and refreshed day by day. The question is, guys, is that happening in our lives? I mean, we've got to be seeking that fountain of living water. That's why, you know, basically... We, the first thing we study this year is the, the significance of, of seeking God and really connecting with Him and letting His Spirit work in our lives and being renewed day by day so that we don't lose heart as we get older. Now, I realize we all... There are all kinds of ways you can work at trying to slow this process down. Exercising... Plastic surgery tries to do a real good job of, of masking it. But, you know, it can't, it, it, it always, it's it just a matter of time for it. It all, it fails. We're wasting away. Comment or question? Let's go down to verses 19. Go back to John 4. Go back to 19 and 20. <clears throat> She says, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you and you and you people, being Jews, you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship." Basically, most commentators think she's trying to say it that He's talking to her about her personal life. She's living in sin. And she tries to say, change the subject. But she speaks of the difference in belief between the Samaritans and the Jews. And then what is wait, in, in 21 and 22, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he's saying, The Jews have it right. And then 23 and 24 are very significant. He says an hour is coming, or time is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Samaritans worship in a temple on Mount Gerizim. It had been torn down, but they've rebuilt it. The Jews worship in a temple in Jerusalem, which was there at the time, which was torn down in 70 A.D. by the Romans. It has never been rebuilt. He's saying, but the time is coming when all this is going to change, when the divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans and even the Gentiles will cease. And temple worship is going to be replaced. And Jesus basically saying, I have begun that work that is leading to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. You see, guys, the old covenant with its ceremonial and sacrificial aspects were temporary. Only there for a period. They were very provisional. The new covenant involved the work and the role of the Spirit without the need of this temple really a temple of any kind now the great commentator Rodney Whitaker says to worship God in spirit and truth you know could mean several things but he, this guy is, is a great theologian he says this The think people always wonder what does it mean to worship when he says worship in spirit and in truth I don't think it's probably as complicated as we want to make it he says to worship in spirit and truth means to worship as one who is spiritually alive living in the new reality that Jesus offers, referred to here as the gift of God, which is living water. For behind the earthly things are heavenly things, that is, God Himself, worshiping in spirit is connected to the fact that God is spirit, and worshiping in truth is connected with Jesus, the Messiah who explains everything. This picture of Jesus will be developed more when it is said that His words are spirit and truth in John 6:63, 6, which we'll get to. And he refers to himself as, I am the truth. So when we're worshiping him in truth, we're talking about he's talking about Jesus. So worshiping in spirit and in truth is related to the very character a, of God and the identity of Christ. It is to worship in union with the Father who is spirit and according to the revelation of the Son who is the truth. Indeed, it is to be taken into union with God through the spirit. In, in the old covenant, you approach God through the high priest. In the future, in the new covenant, you will approach God through the Jesus, the truth of life. And then in verse 25, basically, you know what she's saying? Look at verse 25. You know what she's saying? <clears throat> I don't really have any idea what you're talking about. But when the Messiah comes, He's going to explain everything. I'll, I, he'll, he'll explain it all. So they believe, she believes that a Messiah is coming. And you see that in the Pentateuch. But guys, Jesus then says something incredible to her. In verse 26, what does he say? I am he. I'm, I'm the man. I am that Messiah that you're referring to. You know the only other time he says this out he comes up and says I am the Messiah he says it to his disciples and he says it at his trial. Remember he tells what does he tell Pilate yeah I am a king. I am that king. And the only other person he says it to is this moral outcast this Samaritan woman. You know now personally I, I, I was thinking about this. You know if I had been Jesus after performing these great miracles, I mean he did some unbelievable miracles <coughs> that's when I'd have stood up and said alright I'm the long awaited Messiah but he never does and that's why God's ways guys truly are not man's ways, they're not my ways yeah cop?
2: you know the th- the three things that struck me about those two verses. And the first is she knew that a Messiah was coming. I mean, she's a moral outcast and right. everything, but obviously the fact that a Messiah was coming was a pretty pervasive thought amongst everybody. Right. I agree. And so the second thing is in the, in the same way that Christ came from Nazareth, Christ was born in a stable. I mean, everything about him was humble. And, and the first person that he told he's the Messiah, is somebody who's a total outcast. Yeah. And then the third thing is, you know, he told her to go tell everybody, you know, she goes in and says, couldn't see this guy who I've seen, but, you know, not to be trivial about it, but I'm sure when this woman went in and told everybody, I found the Messiah, they just went, bullshit. I mean, how, did, how, did <laughs> you know, I mean, how are you the one that, that discovers that the Messiah's here? Yeah. So the humility of
0: it, really... I couldn't agree more. I couldn't... I mean, I, that, that's the one thing that, that throughout the, the the Gospels, as you look at Jesus' life, I mean, it was... I mean, uh, he always does the unexpected. And, um, I mean, he, he, he berates the, the, you know, the, the religious, the high and mighty, and yet he shows real, like with this woman, real tenderness. And you don't see you know, any moral outright. I mean, you don't see him condemn You see no, that's the one thing that I that is always struck. Right. You see no condemnation towards this woman. She'd been married five times. She was living in a guy with a guy and you don't see him say, lady, no wonder you're so messed up. You've been married five times and you're living with a guy. You don't see any of that. He lasers in on the spiritual need in her life. And I think that is significant. So I appreciate that, cop. Anybody else?
2: Doesn't the record show uh, that there, there really weren't any fiction writers, you know, in this era? And there's there's no way somebody could really come up with this, you know, this line. Now you're of, now like,
0: you're yeah. right. They, there was. I mean, the only thing you had were people like who wrote about the you know the Norse legends and things like that. But now you yeah you're right. There wasn't any fiction. But, hey, it's, it's, I tell you, what, I read something the other day that said, and and this was a a incredibly brilliant person. Who knows a little, he says to, to have invented the Holy Spirit would be almost a human impossibility for somebody to come up with that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit one God, three persons, almost impossible. So that's an interesting thought, son. Anybody else? Jim? I think
1: the timing and the manner in which he reveals himself as Christ is very significant. Because I read someone recently said one of the temptations that Devil presented to Christ after he went to the wilderness was, I'll make you king of the world. Yeah. And every time he would do a miracle, rather than stand up and say, Look at me, I'm the Christ. They were trying to make him the king. He would retreat. Yeah. Until, right at the very end, it's, it's kind he, of, was, he was he was doing the opposite of what the world would expect.
0: Like it, was, it kind of reminds me of John the Baptist. He didn't he didn't <laughs> want the li- as we talk about li- He didn't want the limelight. He ba- he didn't want people, Yeah, you know, because he understood his purpose. And it basically, he, his purpose was to go to the cross.
2: Well, I think it also, it, it, um, he's he's telling those people to go back and declare it, which is what he's gonna, he's telling us that our commission. Is that's true. right. He does it with the. That's exactly. That's exactly right. You know.
0: That's exactly. Go back to your home.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, that, that's a good. We're kind of getting down here to the end. You know, the disciples come back. And they're shocked that he's talking to this woman. Look at the end of verse 27. He says, Why are you talking to this woman? It's almost like they're chastising Jesus for talking to this Samaritan woman who's a moral outcast. Not that they might have, I don't know that they knew she was a moral outcast. And look at verse 28. What does it say? So the woman, this is significant, she left her water pot. Now, let me say, water pots were very important and very expensive. I mean, you, they were essential they were to life. Back, and she leaves the water pot and went to the city. Now, the, this is what's interesting. I don't know what your translation... Everybody look at 28. Some translation says that she went into the city and said to the people. Does anybody have anything else that says about the Mine people?
2: Says, and said
0: to the men. To the men. Mind us, the New American says to the men. <laughs> Isn't that Interesting. I've just met a man, and he's told me everything that I've done to all the men. Now I looked up the, the the Greek word, and it's the word anthropos, which literally means a man, but it's also the same word that's used in John three nineteen, that you know men love the darkness instead of the light, and so their de- because their deeds were evil. So it can be a kind of a gender neutral word. So we don't know if she just went to a bunch. But you know, the the men kind of hung out together back then, and the women. So I can see her going to the big group of men and saying, y'all need to come see this man. He's told me everything that I've done. Some of her ex-husbands might have been in that group for all we know. But do you see what she was doing? By the way, every commentator that I read believed this woman had become a Christian. Because she had heard him declare, I am the Messiah, and she didn't think, she didn't think you've lost your mind. And she leaves her water pot and goes and says to them, come and see him. She's really evangelizing. She's inviting them to come and see. (coughs) And they come. And even though we didn't get to this today, look down at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, They were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And then 41, and many more believed because of his word. Guys, she was doing what God is calling all of us to do. Asking, you know, again, we talked about this. We're not told to go and, and ram Christianity down people, so we just call it, invite them to come and see. And it strikes me that if we don't, if you read this, 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 these thirty verses, it strikes me that if we don't, you know, if we think about water, think about, you know, we take it for granted. We take whether you drink coffee or water or tea or whatever, we take for granted the the fact that it's it's in such abundance. But it's quite clear if we don't drink real water every day, we will die of dehydration. And I think Christ is saying very clearly, if you don't have living water. That I offer you as a gift, you too will die. And C.S. Lewis brings this point home very powerfully in the Chronicles of Narnia as a metaphor for Jesus' teaching here in John 4. I'm convinced of that. And I'm a, I want to close because I think this is a wonderful way to close this. It's a great story. I think some of you have heard it because I've read it before. i read it at the club before. But it's in the the uh, you know he has the the in the Chronicles of Narnia I think there's five different stories and this one's from the Silver Chair, and it's just a beautiful picture I think of of, of what we just read. And it's about a girl named Jill and Jill kind of is you know it's an allegory she is a representative of of, of the human race, um, and she's consumed with herself she's convinced that she knows what's best. And she wants to have nothing to do with Aslan, the great and magnificent lion who represents Jesus. (coughs) And yet Jill, in the story, is desperately searching for water. It's a picture of the human search for this living water. And I love the way Lewis puts it. He says, Jill has grown unbearably thirsty. But she can hear a stream somewhere in the forest. Driven by her thirst, she begins to look for this source of water. Cautiously, because she is fearful of running into the lion, she finds the stream, but she is paralyzed by what she sees there. Aslan, huge and golden, still as a statue, but terribly alive, is sitting right there next to the stream. She waits for a long time, wrestling with her thoughts and hoping that maybe he'll go away. Then Aslan says, with real kindness, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Jill is startled and refuses to come closer. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only with a look and a very low growl. And just as Jill gazed at its motionless hulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. But that delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls? She asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor nor as if it were angry. The lion just said it. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. This is so powerful. This is what Jesus is saying to the world. This is what Jesus is saying here. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion said, there is no other stream here. I'm the fountain of living water there is no other fountain and if you don't come to me you will die and yet I think we all know guys that men spend their lives looking for some other stream to finally and forever quench the thirst of their souls however Jesus says there's no other stream and he's very clear about the fact that if we do not drink from this spring the fountain of living water we will die.
1: You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www. Richard 3com three dot com or by email to Richard at richardesimmons3.com.